Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Take out our Bibles today, and if you guys could turn with me to uh, Luke's Gospel, actually. Luke chapter 4 this morning. Uh, We're going to start this morning a a short four-week study on the ministry of Christ. Uh, Sometimes when you're uh, like a church like ours that goes through books of the Bible from the front to the back, uh, sometimes it's helpful to visit just a portion of some of the larger books of Scripture, especially uh, in the Gospels. So over the last number of years, I've taught through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, so all, all four Gospels. And it takes a long time to get through an entire gospel. Uh, So I thought uh, that we could take a few weeks, four weeks, to go through uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 11, and look at the launch of the ministry of Jesus to refresh ourselves in what he was about, his aim, his ambitions, his desires, because we, of course, want to align ourselves with what Jesus uh, is about, uh, before then jumping into a short study in the Psalms and then getting into our fall uh, season. So today we'll be in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to 15. If you're new here to the church, I'm Nate. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'd love to say hello to you in the Welcome Center after the service if you'd like to pop by and uh, introduce yourself. And uh, I just wanted to give, I don't like to talk about myself very much, but I just wanted to give a teeny little personal update to you guys because some of you were here on the Sunday that I lost my voice uh, in the middle of a sermon, and that's happened to me a couple of times recently. And a lot of the doctors in the church told me that I needed to get in to see an ear, nose, and throat specialist, and that finally happened. And uh, praise God, it's nothing crazy or scary, but there is something in there. Uh, Like uh, Chloe from Pitch Perfect, I have nodules on my vocal cords. And uh, it sounds scary, but it's a real common thing for singers or public speakers to get. It basically cuts down my range. I can't sing. I can't yell. I need to recover for a little while. Uh, But fortunately, the recovery doesn't mean that I can't speak. It just means I have to do some therapy, relearn how to Uh, project my voice in a different kind of way. Uh, I I tend not to breathe correctly when I'm preaching. I tend to yell or uh, get too animated when I'm preaching. So you guys can help me out, you know, instead of when I'm really going for it, instead of saying amen, say slow down. Uh, That'd be great. And uh, the sound guys are doing a great job helping me have the presence that I need uh, without projecting my voice all that much. So your prayers are appreciated, but Uh, They say it's something that I can recover from, so I'm on the road to recovery. Just want to let you know about that. And then I also just wanted to take a moment because uh, we've got some dates coming up where our Israel trip, you know, some deposits will be due and stuff like that. I just wanted to mention we still have a little bit of space for our Israel tour coming up in February. Uh, This is a great opportunity to get a quick Bible education. You basically are going to get an overview of the Old and New Testament live and on the scene in Israel, seeing many of the sites that Jesus ministered in and many of the events of the Old and New Testament occurred at. So love to have you there. I'll be leading uh, this tour and giving teachings at the various sites, and uh, we're going to have a blast together. And like I said, there's a few more spaces available, so if you'd like to be part of that, uh, please join us. All right, let's read our passage together, uh, Luke 4, 1 to 15. This is the 
uh, temptation of Jesus. Uh, Starting out in verse 1, if you guys would just follow along, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up, verse 5, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And verse 9, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we we pray that you'd help us to be a people who are able to endure the types of temptations that Jesus endured. But Father, bigger picture, we are so thankful that the only begotten Son came and did things that we could not do and passed all the tests and died on the cross for the sin of the world, our sin. So Lord, we thank you and we pray that you teach us from your book today, from this story today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, uh, I'm told that the uh, launch phase Uh, for a space shuttle is of utmost importance. You know, if there's going to be uh, an orbit, if there's going to be a successful mission to space, uh, the launch is all important. Everything's got to be just right. The weather has to be just right. The astronauts have to be healthy. Uh, All the math has to add up. If, If anything is off, it's delayed or canceled because the launch must be perfect. And uh, what we're looking at today in this little passage, this temptation that Jesus goes through is we're looking at the launch of Jesus's ministry, not just today, but in the subsequent weeks of our study in the ministry of Christ. We're going to see him here in this passage prepared as the perfect son of God. We're going to see him next week in a very important episode where he opens up the Bible in the synagogue in Nazareth and looks for a passage in Isaiah that describes why he came and what his ministry is all about. And then we're going to see him live that out for a short period in the region of the Galilee before then declaring what his strategy is for reaching the nations and accomplishing his mission, uh, his strategy of building up a disciple team that would then build more teams and go into all the world proclaiming the gospel until the day that he returns. So the launch is all important, and Jesus' launch was successful. Now, we start today with this passage where Jesus was tempted uh, in the wilderness for, as Luke says, a period of 40 days. 
Uh, You might notice there in verse 2, Luke says he ate nothing during those days. Uh, Now, I take that to mean that Jesus literally ate nothing during those 40 days and that his body was brought to the point of emaciation, of starvation, uh, when the full thrust of Satan's temptations uh, came upon him. He was tempted during the entirety of the 40 days, uh, but this is the pinnacle or the crescendo of that temptation. But I should mention uh, that there are evangelical, biblical, solid scholars out there who don't think that Jesus abstained from food entirely during the 40 days, but that he was fasting, as Matthew says in his gospel, that he was fasting. And if he was fasting, there is room for the possibility that he was just eating off of the land. It was just not food that he brought with him, or uh, that he was not eating during the day, but was eating something from the land in the evening or in the morning before the day began. But like I said, I think that Jesus abstained completely from food during those 40 days, Uh, But regardless of how you take it, uh, Luke, who was a doctor, uh, wrote the Gospel of Luke, and it's clear to him that Jesus was in a weakened, and he says, hungry state when these temptations reached their climactic point. In in a sense, I think what we're supposed to see when we read of Jesus enduring this temptation is we're supposed to to see the anti-Garden of Eden. Right? It's like the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve dealt with in the early pages of the book of Genesis. Uh, there's brokenness, he's in the wilderness, he's starving, and he passes the test. Whereas in the Garden of Eden, with bountiful food and all of that, Adam and Eve fail the test. So Jesus is going to pass where uh, his forefather, where Adam, could not pass the test. Which brings me to how we should view these temptations. You know, how are we supposed to approach uh, the stories of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? Sometimes I think we're too quick to tritely kind of apply Jesus's experience into our own lives. But if you really stop and think about it, it's kind of a passage that's hard to relate to on one hand. I mean, I don't know about you, but I for one have never, ever been tempted to turn a rock into bread. That's never been something that I've just thought to myself, you know what I'm going to try to do right now? I'm really tempted. I want, feel like I want to, but I won't. No, that's not a temptation that is something that we experience. I've never had a temptation to do something which, if I did it in a moment, would make me the master or the king of the universe, the, the nations of the world. And I've never personally been tempted to jump off a tall building or a tall structure to see if God would catch me as a way to prove the power of God. Right? So in one sense, it's kind of hard to relate to these temptations. So how can we relate to them? How can they connect to you and me today? Well, the way to connect them is, to by, is, is by thinking about what Luke said before this passage. Uh, right before this passage, you might notice that there's a genealogy, everybody's favorite parts of the Bible, the genealogies. Uh, but this is the genealogy of Jesus. And Luke, in his gospel, traces the line of Jesus from Jesus all the way back to, he calls him the son of Adam, the son of God. Then, right before that genealogy, you have the event of Jesus' baptism, where he went into the water, came out of the water, and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove descending upon him. 
And the father spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then throughout the temptation, what does Satan say a couple of times to Jesus? He says, if you are the son of God. So what's being tested right here in this temptation? It's Jesus's relationship with his father. Adam, as a son of God, so to speak, failed Would Jesus. What would the perfect son of God do? How would he navigate these attacks on his relationship with his father? And that's, I think, how we can connect to the temptations that are found here because we are constantly tempted to doubt God and to have a difficulty in our relationship with him. Whether it's doubting his goodness, whether it's doubting his trustworthiness, whether it's doubting that he's enough for us, we're constantly tempted to believe that he's not good enough, he's not enough for us, and that he's not worthy of our total worship. And so how does Jesus overcome these temptations? So uh, it's really nice. There's three temptations, so it's great if you want to have a three-point sermon on it, and that's exactly what I've got. I'd be a real biff if I had a four-point sermon today on these three temptations. So I got three points to help you see how Jesus overcame these temptations. Number one is found from the first temptation. Jesus endured it uh, by confessing that his father is trustworthy. Jesus confessed, my father is trustworthy. And let me show you how I get that. Look at the temptation itself. It's found in verse three. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Okay, the question we have to ask with this temptation is, what would be so wrong about turning stone into bread? What's the big issue? Why is this a temptation for Jesus? We, we know, for instance, in other passages of Jesus's life, I mean, what, what's the one miracle outside the resurrection that's recorded in all four gospels? It's the feeding of the 5,000 where he took five loaves and two fish and miraculously multiplied them, producing food for the masses. So some people will say, well, the problem then with this is that Jesus would be using his miraculous power to spend it on himself, to satiate himself. Well, the story of the Bible is a story of meals being a really good thing. God designed us to eat. He created food for our enjoyment Uh, The Bible begins with the bounty of Eden. There's the meal of the Passover lamb. There's the bread and wine of the new covenant. And then all things wrap up with the marriage supper of the lamb when we meet Jesus forever. The key to this temptation seems to be that it was the spirit that led Jesus to the wilderness. Uh, Luke is very forceful on this point. Uh, He's clear when he says in verse one and two that Jesus went into the wild because he was led by the Spirit, and that he was full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus was in the wilderness because God had authored that moment in his life. He was in the barren land as a direct result of God's will and God's purpose in his life. So to shortcut that purpose by miraculously feeding himself, by turning stones into bread, would have been the equivalent of Jesus saying something like, I don't belong here. God's will, God's desires, God's decisions for my life are foolish. I should should not trust him. It was the devil's way of saying, God has abandoned you out here. 
You should take care of yourself. Take matters into your own hands because he quite obviously will not take care of you. Now, this is backed up in the way that Jesus dealt with the temptation. I'm sure many of you have heard this before, but Jesus quoted from the Bible in response to every one of the temptations that came his way. He was fighting with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And every scripture that he uh, quoted from in these temptations came from either Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, I don't know with any certainty, but my theory is that Jesus was reading the book of Deuteronomy in his morning quiet time. And that he was feasting on, thinking about, meditating on Deuteronomy 6 and 7 and 8, and it had the answers in their, its context for what he was dealing with uh, in these temptations. And at this first temptation, Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, when he said in verse 4, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, when that was written in Deuteronomy, what was the original setting of that statement? Well, you might remember that God had rescued the people of Israel from their uh, you know, over 400-year slavery in Egypt through a bunch of plagues and miracles and the Red Sea. And they'd come out into the wilderness, and the people had begun to wonder, how are we going to survive in the wilderness? You can see why it's a very appropriate passage for Jesus to be thinking about and studying as he's in the wilderness. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. He was out there for 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, They needed food. They were hungry, and they began to cry out to God, and God supplied. What did he supply? He supplied manna to them for those 40 years. That manna was a miraculous bread from heaven that appeared six days a week, and on the sixth day, they were to collect two days' worth so that they wouldn't have to go out and work and collect on the Sabbath day. And as a way to demonstrate that we don't live by bread alone, It's said there in Deuteronomy that we live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. In other words, God is the one who gave the directive, the command, the commission every day for the manna to come. So how were the people of Israel surviving? Well, they were surviving by the manna. No, that's not what Deuteronomy is saying. Deuteronomy is saying they're surviving by the word of God. God commanded the manna, and so that's how they lived. That's how they survived. And God gave the word, God gave the directive for Jesus to go into a barren wilderness. So Jesus, too, would survive. By rebutting Satan, Jesus was saying, my father is trustworthy. He brought me here. He loves me. I'm good. Now, this was a really important temptation for Jesus to stand up to, right? You remember the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus died on the cross? He cries out to the Father, Father, you know, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You don't pray that kind of prayer unless you conclude this kind of thing in this first temptation. That what God has for me, what God has planned for me, what God has directed for my life, is good, and I will trust him. My God is trustworthy, Jesus is saying. But uh, you and me, we're also often tempted in the same way, aren't we? Tempted to doubt God's trustworthiness and to do our own thing and to do it our own way. You guys all know that Fleetwood Mac song, right? You can go your own way. 
You know, that's oftentimes, you know, our, our thought, I think it's a breakup song, you know, like you can get out of here. But I, I think a lot of times we, we think that thought, we have that feeling like I will go my own way. I'll do it my way. You might even be like Jesus or like the people of Israel from this passage with a beautiful story of what God did in your past. I mean, Jesus was there in the wilderness fresh after being baptized at the Jordan River. The people of Israel were out in the wilderness fresh after plague after plague and God's rescue at the Red Sea. But now life has set in and trials are mounting and you find yourself in a dry wilderness period. But just as the father had a deeper plan for Jesus's life out there in the wilderness, so he has a deeper plan in yours as well. Do what you can do. Stay faithful. Stay abiding. The Bible says that those who sow in tears in Psalm 126 verse 5 will reap with shouts of joy. And the context there is uh, as we faithfully walk with God through our trials and difficulties. Uh, I read recently a, an interview with uh, the musician and producer kind of back from the 90s uh, named Beck. I don't know if you guys remember or know that name. Uh, but uh, he was responding in this, in this interview that I read to a study that had done, been done by acoustic scientists in Germany who had done a long study of recorded music over the last several decades. And uh, the conclusion that they'd come to is that as time has progressed in recorded music, the vocals in songs have grown quieter and quieter while the beat has grown louder and louder. And so they wanted to get Beck to comment on this because he's kind of a forefather of this kind of sound. I mean, when he first started coming out with his stuff back in the 90s, it was like, what did he say? You could barely hear him because the beat was so elevated. And he said, yeah, that's the goal. The track and the rhythm, you want them at the forefront to move people. He said, you want to get the tracks louder and louder, mostly beat, a little vocal, and maybe one little element of music. <laughs> and I think it's a great illustration of what happens to us a lot of times. There's God's directive. There's God's vocals. There's God's word. There's God's statement over our lives where he's putting us what he wants for us. But then there's the beat of trials and feelings and pressures and difficulties that barrage our lives. And pretty soon, we're not listening to the vocals of what God has for us, his plans for our lives and what he is doing in our lives, but we're instead drifting from that into being distracted and saying that God is not trustworthy. We have to get back to the vocals. We do not live by bread alone but by every sovereign, planned, strategic, decisive word that God speaks over our lives. You guys, God is, God is good. God is in control. He sees you. He's watching over you. He sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for you. I know this life is hard. I know there are challenging circumstances that come into our lives that we do not wish and that we do not want. But in those moments, we have to continue to say, God is trustworthy. These trials hit all types of people, and I'm going to lean into my Lord. He's going to see me through to the land of promise, okay? So that's the first uh, way that Jesus dealt with temptation. Number two, uh, he said it, I'll say it this way, Jesus endured the second temptation by confessing that his father is best. 
not just trustworthy, but, but the best. Uh, let's read the temptation itself in verse five through seven. It says, the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I think this was like a supernatural vision. Okay? He, he just like, gives him a vision of all the kingdoms. So he's seeing uh, Rome, the empire of Caesar. He's seeing all these incredible kingdoms. And he said to Jesus, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Uh, the, the, the basic of this temptation to Jesus was, Jesus, if you, if you turn your allegiance from your father to me, Satan is saying, then I'll give you all the authority over these kingdoms and over these nations, all the glory, all the fame. I'll give it all to you. Now, the Bible does refer to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. The Bible does refer to Satan as the ruler of this world. Uh, but, but my personal opinion is that uh, when he's saying these things to Jesus, he's making promises that he can certainly not fulfill. Now, back when I was in like middle school, you know, you'd get little boys, you know, talking trash to each other or whatever. And uh, back in the day, when you wanted to give money to someone, you would write a check. You guys remember checks? And uh, so every once in a while, somebody would say, when, when like a little guy was talking trash to a bigger guy, he's, uh, you'd say, he's writing checks with his mouth that his body can't cash. It was kind of a way of saying like, you're a little dude, there's no way you're gonna be able to back up what you're saying you're gonna to do to that bigger guy. I, I, to me, that, this is one of those moments in Satan's existence. He's writing checks with his mouth that his body can't cash. Uh, what he was doing was offering Jesus all the power and the influence and the glory and the fame of the world, but without the cross. Avoid the cross, don't go to the cross. And of course, the cross would be eventually the true way that Jesus would get the true version of all of these things. Paul said to the Philippian church that when Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus would get all of these things through the agony of the cross. Okay, so Jesus uh, responded to this temptation, though, with the Bible. This time he gave a summary of Deuteronomy 6, verse 13 and 14, when uh, in verse 8 he said, It's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Okay, this is a really interesting quotation for a couple of reasons. One is, right before that quotation in Deuteronomy, uh, God had said that you should worship him or that you should love him with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Remember how Jesus said that when they asked him what's the greatest commandment? It came from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You, you need to love God. Uh, but the reason that it says it there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is because God in that passage was promising the people of Israel who were in the wilderness that one day they would not be in the wilderness any longer, that they'd be brought into the promised land and they'd be given crops and flocks and land and houses that they did not work for. In other words, he says, a beautiful day of blessing is coming in your life. And when that day comes, you have to be sure that you maintain your love for me. Do not wander from me. 
You've got to worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The reason it's so fascinating to me is because in the first temptation, uh, the context was, we're in the wilderness, things aren't going good, and God says, hey, you've got to trust me in that moment. And then the other context is, things are going good. And God says, you've got to make sure you don't forget me in that moment. Isn't that who we often are? Things are going badly and we have a tough time trusting God. Things are going well, we have a hard time prioritizing God. And so Jesus says, no, I'm not supposed to worship anyone else. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In other words, no matter how good life gets, the people of Israel had to be sure not to forget God. And when Satan was dealt with by Jesus in this way, it's like Jesus was saying, my father is best. Nothing you offer me can turn me. I already have the very best there is, and I won't do anything to jeopardize that relationship. I will get everything that he's planned for me his way and not your way. Now, this is an important one for us to get a hold of in our own hearts because, you know, whether we say it or not, whether, whether the argument in our soul or the excuses that we make, uh, it, it, whether we articulate it this way or not, Oftentimes, what we're doing is justifying our actions by saying, uh, I need more than God. I can't be satisfied with just him. Uh, there's got to be something else that comes into my life. You know, the Corinthian church, uh, they, they, they were a wild church. I don't know if you guys know that, but uh, the, you know, when the gospel went out into the world, uh, it reached into all kinds of wild places, and Corinth was one of those wild places. So lots of new Christians in the church in Corinth, and uh, they were just figuring out how to ride the bike of Christian morality. I mean, they had, they had not practiced Christian morals at all up to the point that they heard the gospel. And so they're trying to figure it out. And one of the things they really struggled with was holding to a biblical sexual ethic. And so there was sexual immorality running rampant in the church in Corinth. And uh, one of the arguments that they gave to Paul, the apostle, kind of as pushback, they're like, we don't want to live the way the Bible tells us to live. One of the pushbacks that they gave is they, is they gave him a proverb from their era and time. And the proverb said, the stomach is for food and food is for the stomach. And what, what they meant by using that proverb is that they were kind of saying to Paul, like, hey, you know, food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food. The body is for sex and sex is for the body. How can we be complete, full, thriving individuals if that's not something that we're able to access because we're not married? And how can you say that we've got to confine ourselves or restrict ourselves in any way? Uh, but Paul corrected them by saying, no, you've actually got the analogy all wrong. It's not that uh, your body is for sex. He said, your body is actually for the Lord. In other words, Paul said, sex isn't your big need, as great as it can be, and as much as God has created it for a certain context, but God is your great need. God is the best. There's no unfulfilled desire, no dream, no measure of fame, no personal security, or any other thing that measures up to him. But we can do this so easily. We can take blessings that God has given, and we can turn them into God replacements. But in the face of temptation, we have to declare, I will not be satisfied with anything or anyone lesser than God. Only God truly satisfies me. My Father is best. 
Okay, the final and uh, third temptation that Jesus uh, dealt with, uh, he dealt with by confessing that his father is good. My father is trustworthy, my father is best, and my father is good. Let's see what Satan said to him in verse 9 through 11. Hang with me now. Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. We could do 40 minutes, okay? So let's, let's do it. The devil took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So uh, Jesus has been quoting the Bible back to Satan. Satan now quotes the Bible to Jesus. Quotes from Psalm 91. Uh, and basically he takes the plain meaning of Scripture he abuses it and basically says that this psalm says that angels will help you and guard you, Jesus. So throw yourself off this structure and demonstrate God's power right now. You're his son, so he's forced to protect you. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, there's a great little lesson in the way that Jesus and Satan handled scripture for us today. Uh, there's a theologian and apologist named Greg Kokel who uh, one of the points that he makes is that as Christians, we should never read a Bible verse. And what he means by that is almost any Bible verse can be taken out of its context, alone, by itself, without knowing the background or the history. Even some of the real difficult verses in Scripture that you, when you read them, they almost sound offensive or counterintuitive, like they're not for human rights or for women or things like that. Once you get into the context of what they meant to the original people and the surrounding air passages around them, you understand so much more than just what you're seeing with that one little line or with that one little sentence. And you see that typified here in the way that Satan and Jesus use the Bible. Jesus is in Deuteronomy 6 through 8. He's tying his thoughts about those verses to the original context and setting. He's thinking about what it meant to the original hearers, not just himself, but to the original hearers first, and then drawing lessons out of it. Uh, Satan is just looking for a verse to try to mess with Jesus's mind. So I think that's a great thing for us to consider. It's, it's part of the reason why we want to just keep moving through the Bible, reading the whole thing, because you've got to get that overall context. Now, the temptation, though, that Satan brought against Jesus, this is a deadly one because we experience this one often. It basically is saying, uh, if God loves me, if I am now his adopted child, why would I go through pain? Why would I suffer? Why would I get sick? Why would I go through a trial? It's a temptation, in other words, to believe that God is not good and that he's withheld from us, which is course, very reminiscent of what was happening in the Garden of Eden originally. And every time anything bad happens to us, everything from striking our foot against a stone, to quote from Psalm 91, to things a lot worse than that, and some of you today, you're going through things a lot worse than that, you might wonder if God is good. Now, this line of temptation, it wants to get you off of the gospel, it wants to get you off of seeing God through the grid of the gospel wants to get you away from seeing the goodness of God in the cross of Christ. 
And it wants to get you off of the understanding that ultimately in the gospel, all the physical blessings that we're longing for and looking for, the peace, the harmony, the health, and all of that, they come to us eventually because of God's overall redemptive plan. But Jesus battled against this line of temptation real simply. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6.16 and verse 12. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, back in Deuteronomy, it goes on to say, as you tested him at, the, at a very specific location, Maesa. Now, Maesa means place of testing. You might think that what that means is, oh, they came to this place and God tested them at Maesa. That's not it. They tested God at this place. Uh, Maesa was where the people of Israel went uh, about six months after they were set free from Egypt. So they're like within six months of experiencing and witnessing 10 miraculous plagues being rained down upon the Egyptians and not them. They're six months removed from the parting of the waters at the Red Sea. They've experienced the manna. They've experienced water from the rock. They've experienced incredible miracles of things that God did in their lives. But here's how they tested God. They came to a new place, this place, Maesa, And they had another little water crisis. Where's water? And they asked the question, is God with us or not? Now, now my suggestion is if, if just one of the things that had happened to them in the previous six months of their experience had happened to you, you'd probably be able to write a book about it and tour the Christian circuit for the rest of your life telling the story of that one thing that happened. But there they were, fresh off of all of these incredible experiences of what God had done in their lives, and they asked the question, is the Lord among us or not? Their short-sightedness would be laughable if it weren't so often what we do. After everything that God had done, they began to doubt his goodness toward them. Is he with us or not? And that is so often our question, is he with us or not? But Jesus wouldn't go there. He wouldn't ask that question. He didn't need to throw himself down from the temple to see a display of God's goodness. He would not test the Lord like that. He already knew the Father was with him. And so by rebutting Satan this way, Jesus was saying, my Father is good. Even if I were to dash my foot against a stone, Even if I were to die naked on a Roman cross, I know that he's good. He's with me, and I do not need to test his goodness. Now, this is a huge protection against temptation. In in fact, this is one of those things that when you understand it, it protects you doctrinally from so many errors, so many things that feel like they'd be good but are out of bounds biblically, to trust that God is good keeps you centered and in the right place. You know, what God, what God has said, what God has declared, it, it is good. And so there must be something wrong with my grid if I'm thinking that it's not good. Uh, but that goodness is a great protection against temptation. To say he's been good to me, that puts us in a healthier place. As Paul said in Romans 8 verse 32, he said, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He is our good father who's given us his only begotten son. There's nothing good that he'll withhold from us, so we have to trust in his goodness. Now with that, the perfect son of God, uh, he was launched. He trusted his father. 
He'd worshiped his God. He believed in God the Father's goodness. And, and my prayer is that we would understand this, embrace this for our own lives as well, so that we could embark successfully on the mission that Jesus has given to us as well. Jesus, at this point, is now ready for his public ministry. And I think some of these questions that he was dealing with out there in the wilderness are important questions for us if we're going to be used by God as well. Do I trust God? Do I think that God is good? Do I think that he's enough for me and can satisfy my soul? These are important questions to ask and grapple with and to go to the word to see how he has been so good and faithful for so many years. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.